Recorded live at Toxin Tasting Studios, it's the Clerical Errors Podcast. The podcast that shows you what's behind the collar. Let's go. All right, well, welcome to the Talks and Tastings Studios. This is Bullhagen. And I'm Brick. Welcome to the show. Thank you for the rousing, rousing uh, introduction voiceover guy. Indeed. And this show is Clerical Errors, where we show you what is behind the collar. And we got Vicar here too. Hey, Vicar. It is a pleasure to be here. All right. And Peter's here. Hi, I'm here. Well, I've got a beverage here. So, uh, so what is this famed be- beverage that beverage? Well, it's uh, it's Latin in nature. Like, like Mediterranean Latin, or are we talking like, like Latin America? Um. Well, you're the Latin scholar. Does that look like Spanish or Latin to you? Oh, well, that looks like uh. I think that looks like Espanolish. So uh, I brought then. Uh, how would you pronounce that? Jaritos. Yeah, I think so. Uh, nice. They are. It's a lime flavored soda. Here, Vicar. Natural flavor soda with real sugar. Nice. I thought we'd get a flavored soda today because uh, it were a little earlier in the day today and. I might hit the weight room a little later, so. It's true. When you you're gonna clang and bang in the weight room. If I'm gonna clang and bang, I can't really do that with a. Uh, mm. With a beverage, that kind of beverage. It's good. I like it. Yeah, it is tasty. Something. It's got almost like a like a little bit of a salt in it. If you think salt. Yeah, it's like, like a, a salt rim. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think, Vicar? I'm not a big soda guy, but this is all right. It's refreshing. That actually, that would actually be pretty good with a little, um, um, like a tequila. Or yeah, a, there you go. Yeah, It'd be okay. good with tequila. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> um. Hey. Okay. What are you preaching on? Are you preaching? Yes, I am preaching. Nice. And I am going to be preaching on the gospel lesson now. We're both doing the one-year series, but uh, you're doing the last Sundays of the church here, and we're on this case. I'm actually being the liberal here. Oh my! I'm following the LW, the wow. Lutheran worship. So, the, when it, when we do, I know, right? It's, Consistency. Yeah. Did you listen to the last podcast? <laughs> I I know, right? I I should have. Um. Anyway, so in the LW, they skipped the last three Sundays of the church year. And so I'm doing the second to the last Sunday of the church year. Now, you're doing the original practice that the Missouri Senate did, is that you just go straight through until you come to the end, and then you finally do the last Sunday. Right. So I'm doing uh, the 22nd Sunday after Trinity. Right. And this is uh, the parable of the unforgiving servant. And it uh, begins with Peter asking a question, which I love this question. This is really a, a way to talk about salvation by grace alone as opposed to works. Because mm-hmm. this is what it does. It begins with Peter asking the question, not our lovely producer, but someone, another Peter. Uh, he came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven. Now, the reason why I say that, that that's a beautiful example of what works righteousness does is it always looks for the minimum requirement. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, How little do I need to do so, uh, to skate for, by? Right. So when I give my confirmation kids a class, 
what's the first question they ask? They say, we're having a test next week. What do you think they ask? How many can I pass and still get wrong and still pass? What's Ooh. what's the lowest score, right? Mm. <laughs> uh. It's kind of like Peter's question, right? How many times do I have to? Well, if you love your brother, it doesn't ask how many times. Now, I thought I had remember that I, 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 I don't know. This might be a false memory. I thought like when I researched this text once that um, the rabbis would only let you forgive up to like three times. And so Peter here is actually being like, right, like, like super like, above and beyond you know? already. And Jesus is like, nah, nah, man, you know, you forgive, you know. Because the thing is, if, if it's works righteousness, that's what you're going to do. What are the requirements? Right. You know, how many people say, well, it, it's kind of like taxes. Well, how, how much do I have to give? Well, that's law. You're going to give only. <laughs> right. And I mean, that parable is really. A really strong law. Mm-hmm. It's kind of the mirror bizarro image of what we pray in the in the Lord's Prayer, right? Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Right. And that if we don't forgive, and the parable by the way actually is forgiven. from is from Matthew 18. And by the way, context, where does that come right before? Oh, uh, where Jesus we yeah, have Jesus brother ta- over. Right, talks about excommunication, right? Mm-hmm. Um that that is not just simply um, what do I want to say? Um, it's not just a trial or a, um, you know a process, right? Like oh well, I went and talked to him. I took another guy along, and then I took it to the church. Now right. we're done with him. Right. It's not like okay, we did the, what we were required to do for this person, but Jesus expresses the whole time the desire to win over your brother. And so so when he asks the question, how many times do I have to forgive? Well, you're you're putting a limit. It's like how much do I have to love someone? And then he uses math, which which pastors hate. Oh yeah. I mean, so I mean, it's like, boy, I don't want to calculate that, so I'll just <laughs> forgive him all the time. And and so Jesus tells a parable about basically someone who could not pay, and and the king has mercy on him. Right. It's like ten thousand talents, right? Mm-hmm. And a talent is fifteen years of wages. So this guy owes 150,000 years of wages to the king. And he's like, oh, oh, be patient with me. I'll pay it back. <laughs> you know, which is ridiculous right. in and of itself. Yeah. It's kind of like when we try to bargain with God and say, oh, yeah, yeah, if you if you deliver me, you know, I'll just, I'll pray more. He's like. Do you know what I want to ask that guy? If, <laughs> I want to ask the guy if his college degree was worth it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Right, it'd be like the the millennial edition of the Bible, right? That that this is the student loans guy, and, and so uh, and so this guy goes out, and when someone can't pay him back, he deals roughly with him. Right, and so this other guy owes him like, what was it like six hundred denarii, or a hundred, a hundred? So he owes him about a hundred days' wages, and he be, he starts to choke him. Right, and yeah. And the thing is, the guy says the same thing that, you know, this guy had said previously to the king. Mm-hmm. Be patient with me. I'll, I'll repay it. And so what happens? Chucks him into prison, right? And then the king finds out about it. And what does the king say about all this? Uh, he says, uh, uh, you wicked servant, I forgave you all your debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? 
And in his anger, he delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. Berg, what are you preaching on? All right. So I am preaching on the second to last Sunday of the church year. And so my text is Matthew 25, 31 through 46, the final judgment where Jesus comes in his glory. The angels are with him. Uh, before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. The sheep here represent those who are righteous, those who believe in Jesus. The goats represent those who don't believe in Jesus, those who um, are unrighteous or wicked. Now, the sheep are not received into God's kingdom because of their works. It says here, Jesus says to them, Come, you, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Right? This text teaches the wonderful and glorious uh, teaching of predestination, that before the world was even created, God loved us and was preparing a place for us, and that he elects us in Jesus Christ. So, brings a question, because a lot of people are confused by what you said, because they say, I didn't think you Lutherans believed in predestination. What are they thinking? Well, they could be thinking one of two things. They could be thinking the Calvinist teaching or the right. Reformed teaching of predestination, where God uh, chooses some and damns others from all eternity, right? Um, the other way that is probably more common in the United States is to think that God doesn't choose anybody, but that we choose him. Mm -hmm. So... But here we see that God has prepared this kingdom for his elect before the foundation of the world. So does that mean then he damns others? And the answer is no, because he says to them, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Hell was not ever prepared for man. It was prepared for the devil and for his angels. God did not destine us to wrath, but he destines us, but he, but he wants us to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And this faith, right, because God elects us, as Romans 8 says, he, he predestines us, he calls us, he sanctifies us, and then this shows up in our works, right? Mm -hmm. Because the righteous believe, they then serve their neighbor. And when we serve our neighbor, we serve Christ. The damned, uh, because they don't have faith, don't serve their neighbor. And here we see that the sin of omission, not doing what you are supposed to do, is just as damning as sins of commission, mm -hmm. sins that we do that we shouldn't have done. All right. Any anything to add, Vicar? Oh, he had he had the opportunity today. He had a good afternoon. He had the good a chance to to preach the word to some elderly folks at the nursing home. So good. That's always fun. It's fun. Actually, it is because you preach the gospel. In in one thing, did you give him like Song of Solomon or something? <laughs> <laughs> Boy, what did you have for lunch today? <laughs> Berg is fired up today. He is fired up. Wow. Um, no, but I always like preaching to, to, in the nursing homes because you talk about people who appreciate the gospel. Absolutely. And need to hear it. And, you know, in our situation, you know, at a nursing home, you know, sometimes you put on a rotation with other pastors. Okay. Like for this right. one, you're November. So we do the the Thursdays in November, and you you know that they're not always hearing hearing the gospel. Right. You know it. So, unfortunately. Anyways, that brings us to we're gonna switch the order today because um, well I'll let, we're gonna do the the blasphemy first because it's gonna lead to discussion 
into the top 12 list. So, Berg, what do you have for us? Well, oh, Peter, Peter, yeah, Peter, please Peter. first play the intro. Berg's Bodacious Blasphemies is the part of the show where Berg seeks to sell you ancient damn delusions by repackaging them for modern consumption. In short, Berg makes bad stuff sound bodacious. It is a pretty nice intro. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> All right. So I was, uh, for my for my blasphemy today, um, I, uh, I was watching uh, YouTube because that's what we do, right? I'm a millennial. I'm almost not always ashamed of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was watching a video by Pastor Fisk, Jonathan Fisk. Mm-hmm. Some of you might have seen some of his uh, YouTube videos, like Worldview Everlasting, or maybe you listened to his podcast, The Mad Christian, or something like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, what was his uh, his YouTube uh, video entitled? It was like, gag me with a confirmation spoon or something. Um, it actually was called... Uh, it's it's entitled Fisk loses his mind and rants against confirmation class. Yeah. So, well, no points for originality there. But <laughs> by the way, uh, that 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 couldn't be said of every pastor. Yep. <laughs> so we'll we'll link that first of all. Right on our, our Facebook because we're really good. Cause just like we linked the twelve hymns that you you post in our top 12 list. Yeah, I, I need to do that. I know, man. I know. I, I'm getting to it. So No, but we'll, we'll, we'll link that so that you can know what we're, t- we're talking about because I don't want to necessarily play the whole thing. Right. But uh, but uh, every pastor is frustrated with confirmation class at some point. Right, and it's like the great big golden cow that we have. I mean, it's amazing how people who, you know um, – like they'll they'll put such stock in it, you know. People who haven't been back to church in twenty years will be like, "But I was confirmed here," right? Right? Um, yeah. I mean, it's such this driving factor, and people feel so very attached to it. Um, and 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 we as as pastors use that because it it does provide an opportunity to actually teach them and spend time with the kids that maybe we wouldn't have otherwise because there's a drive to be confirmed, right? And. Uh, and just for you pastors there, this isn't a new feeling that people have kind of made a golden cow out of uh, confirmation. There's a book called um, Confirmation in the Lutheran Church written by Arthur C. Rep, and uh, this is what he has to say about it. Obviously, confirmation is not a divine ordinance. It is not a sacrament. This has to be said, not because anyone in the Lutheran Church has taught it to be such, but because the aura about confirmation and the esteem in which it is held make it practically as untouchable as some divine ordinance, right? So in a way, I'm really glad that Fisk uh, came up with this video because I think it is interesting. I think it is uh, important for us to talk about confirmation, Mm -hmm. um, to look at what we do and try to make ourselves better, better preachers, better teachers. um, And if something's not working, we, um, you know, we should adjust. Right. So... So, okay, so for the listeners who don't know, your first question is probably, what is confirmation, right? Right. Confirmation is uh, a churchly rite, um, which usually includes a period of instruction, where then people are uh, received as adult members, uh, and it's primarily for the reception of the Lord's Supper, Mm -hmm. okay? Wouldn't you say that's a pretty... Right, where you know. I think uh, they publicly confess 
the faith mm-hmm. to, into which they were baptized. So when they were baptized as an infant, they didn't necessarily make a public confession. But here they confess the faith that they received at their baptism. Right. So, so confirmation kind of looks two ways. It looks back to your baptism, but it also looks forward to the reception of the Lord's Supper. Right. Now, um, maybe some of you guys don't know this, but confirmation, it, it was all over the board um, in early Lutheranism. There were some territories uh, that didn't have confirmation, like um, Hesse. Hesse didn't have confirmation until 1783. There were some church orders that did have confirmation, like uh, the the church orders mm-hmm. or um, the way that they set things up that uh, Luther's pastor, Johannes Bugenhagen, that he set up for particular territories, right? So, um, uh, by the way, uh, Bugenhagen and the Funky Bunch, <laughs> yes. call back. <laughs> nice. And if you don't understand that reference, you need to listen to some more clerical errors. Yeah. <laughs> so... Okay, so I've got uh, three three kind of critiques that I. Oh, well, one oh, one, one thing ahead. too is uh, there there actually there is a the two two ways in which confirmation is viewed within our church body. One is uh, one associates it with the reception of the Lord's Supper. So at confirmation, that is usually the first time you receive the Lord's Supper. There's another uh, side where where uh, they receive instruction for the Lord's Supper, and then they are receiving the Lord's Supper prior to the actual confirmation, sometimes two, three years mm-hmm. before the, act, the actual confirmation. Right. So for us in America, what confirmation usually looks like is it's a two to three year program, right? And it's almost as awesome as your... Uh, I really lime. like this stuff. I really like it. <laughs> um, it's a two to three year program for kids ages, what, 12 to 14, mm-hmm. roughly. And... Uh, kind of end of eighth grade and they get confirmed mm-hmm. okay so just and, and, and you peter know. i i i wouldn't mind once in a while just getting your reaction to this because you are the closest to confirmation so and you went yeah and you i went i went through it twice though right so you've got double the experience right. i guess so you know so, so if you, if I, I really mean this, Peter, if you, you find something you want to just jump in and say, but here's the thing. <laughs> All right. So that's what we're dealing with here. Okay. That's kind of the, the whole point. So what were Fisk's critiques, right? And I'm going to do this. Uh, I'm pulling some of this from his YouTube video and some from a podcast that he, where he kind of talks a little bit more at length about this. So one of Fisk's critiques about confirmation is the setting. He says that the classroom setting is actually inimical. It, it actually is not a very good thing. It doesn't really... Can you uh, use that word again? No, I can't. So, inimical. Hey, vicar. Inimical. What does inimical mean? Inimical. Tending to obstruct or harm. All right. So, Thank you. yes. So, and his uh, one of the examples or illustrations that he gives is this. Kids sit in class for however many hours a day, and then they have to go and they have to sit in another class. Mm-hmm. Right? So, I don't know. I'm throwing it out there. What do you think of that critique? I, I'd uh, agree. Um, it's, it's sometimes, especially for the younger ones, 
it's it can be pretty difficult. I know certainly in some of my classes at uh, Trinity, I had Vickers teaching me who didn't necessarily 100% know what they were doing. It's very hard to keep the peace when you have, you know, 10, 15 kids that have been at school all day. Uh, Vicar is shaking his head. He's, he's, seen- he's agreeing with you. <laughs> so do you have anything to add, Vicar? I am living this experience right now. <laughs> the other- so so, so, so- my, what I was going to say is I kind of agree in the sense that it is challenging to have them learn in the classroom setting. But the other answer is, I mean, what are you going to do? How else are you going to Well, that's what your top them? 12 list is for. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I think about it this way, too. Because how would, I, how, how would you – I know you're really anxious about this to get this back. But, mm-hmm. but what do you what would you suggest? Uh, around a campfire, campfire with a guitar? Well, maybe around a campfire. Yeah? I mean, you know, I, I, I do. I – you know, the the way that this sort of classroom learning where you go into a room and you sit down and you get droned at, the sort of lecture mm-hmm. style has actually been proven to not be as effective as other ways of, of teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, there was actually a whole school of philosophers called the peripatetics, which was just a fancy way of saying that they walked around and talked about stuff, mm-hmm. right? Um, I do think sometimes that... Uh, not only the setting, but also this sort of style of teaching, uh, we give them all the answers for questions that they're not even asking. Asking, And so they never really internalize it. And so I, while I'm not willing to completely throw that, that method away, I do think that, um, I do think it, it, we should think about it. We could, yeah, because we should always be seeking to make it better because, because you know this, I'm gonna be honest. Mm-hmm. All right. Because like I can imagine you not doing well in a classroom setting. Right. I. I mean, I mean, I because I, you know, which is why I'm a little surprised that you're like, yeah, I don't think it's so bad. <laughs> well, well, here, but but here's the thing though, and I, I want to get back to to this aspect of it is, is a lot of people think the pastors are the one who says, well, we should do confirmation this way because it's always been done that way when usually it's the opposite. The pastor kind of wants to shake things up. Right. And it's not always easy to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but as far as a classroom setting, you know, for me, I guess because I have attention issues, I'm extra sensitive to that. Mm-hmm. And so I have some, I have used crazy examples. Um, so you want to hear one of them? Please. Okay. Well, so one of my examples is, and I just taught this a couple of weeks ago, teaching about the resurrection. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, <laughs> so imagine me at a, I was at a football game, and I'm on the 50-yard line watching the football game. And out of the blue, a meteorite falls from the sky and bifurcates me evenly on, in I two like pieces. I like that word, bif- bifurcate. And then I teach him what bifurcate means. Nice. Do you, want to, I, do you want to teach our listeners what bifurcate means? It means to cut evenly in two pieces. Nice. So so I am bifurcated at the football game in front of lots of people. And so what happens after that, obviously, there's a there's a funeral, right? And a big funeral, thousands upon thousands of people. All the former ex-presidents come. Um, all the, the former synod presidents come. And there's this huge, huge funeral, right? Big. 
Of course. All the podcast listeners, you know, send in their condolences Wailing. via via they, they, they electronic they, tears. They uh they at me one last time, bro. <laughs> and and yay at me yay one time. <laughs> First fallen homie. And and so there's a big funeral and, and it died in a public way and, and then and then uh the following Sunday, poor Vicar, he has to kinda of toddle out. He's really nervous because it's a weird situation. I'm not there. And so, but right before the sermon, what would happen if, if then I just walked through the door and I preached a sermon? How would you listen to that sermon? Well, you'd be afraid, right? Yeah. But, but you would think to yourself, okay, this guy might know what he's talking about. Yeah. Right? So I, I think you just described the death of Superman. Did I? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Did you know what one of the kids said as I was telling this story? He goes, oh, you would you would kind of bust through the wall like the Kool-Aid man. <laughs> I didn't know they, they knew the Kool-Aid man. Yeah, so so the, the point is, then, the whole idea is because Jesus died in a public way and he rose from the dead, it is a, is a lesson and it proves that we should really trust his word and what he has to say. Mm-hmm. So that that's kind of a weird story that I would I would attribute to my attention thing that I would say rather than saying okay it just shows that we can trust his word. And and so like I've had kids using this example where they're they're kind of studying for the test and trying to remember and and they say oh bifurcate. Nice. <laughs> By the way, I my my latest joke is it's kind of a riff off an old old joke. Mm-hmm. I I said after after I was bifurcated you know how you can tell I had uh, dandruff? Oh. They found my head and shoulders on the football field. <laughs> nice. <laughs> but, you know, and I think, too, this this whole classroom setting uh, thing also gets to how we would receive new members in. Mm-hmm. You know, because um, I, you know, I've been asked, and people were really afraid that they were going to have to sit through, like, a 16-week class. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and so what I ended up doing was I ended up meeting with people in their homes. Mm-hmm. In a more um, intimate setting, I've done that before. Yeah, where we can, you know, and so I think I think that's one way of really kind of going around this critique, mm-hmm. right? I, 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 you know, I have another example is mm-hmm. uh, is uh, one thing I think they they actually learn a lot doing this, but a lot of times, well, I try and get as many of my confirmation kids to be helpers in our Easter vigil service, mm-hmm. and it is kind of a long for them, but I think the visuals help them learn because we start off with the fire pit outside right and we have a processional with the candles and the and the the paschal camel candle yeah the the aesthetics right right. that you learn the faith not just um by hearing which i mean is the main way right but you also see pictures you smell incense you can feel the heat of the flame no no peter you could you could say did you learn anything from it outside of that's a lot of standing no Okay. I I I just learned I had to stand a lot and it, and I didn't enjoy it. So not always effective. <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah, I mean, I I do think that that is. I mean, I thought it was a reasonable critique that um that I, we should be cognizant of mm-hmm. and use maybe other methods of teaching and also um other maybe environments to. To do said teaching. Right. Right? So, all right. Um, I thought another critique that he had, uh, and he talked about this at kind of in the video a little bit, was confirmation really takes place in the wrong place. 
and by the wrong people. He really made a big uh, thing about the confirmation, the teaching should take place in the home with the parents. Mm-hmm. And so do you want to riff on that a little bit? Well, I would agree. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's very ideal. Yeah. Not mm-hmm. very practical. You know, so I have tried, I do a, a thing where the kids uh, have to read the catechism every week at home. Mm-hmm. The six chief parts every week. And that that can be a challenge sometimes. Even and if it's just reading. And so, you know, the, the, the problem is it really takes a whole culture shift that we're not there yet. Mm-hmm. You know, and, uh, and and I'll be talking about this a little bit later. But, uh, you know, you have kids coming from broken homes. Mm-hmm. You have kids who who have to come to church and sometimes they have to come by themselves yep. because their parents don't even go to church with them. And a lot of times... And I've t- I, a pastor can be put in the position of, I know this. Some of these kids may not get any support at home. And and to make it a law thing, okay, parents, you have to do this or that, just puts the child in danger of actually not being a part. Yeah, I mean, and I don't get me wrong. I do take your, you know, there are there are situations. There are more broken homes now right. and the and, like. and 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 to be honest, too, is I certainly. I certainly we can do more to help parents teach their kids at home, and and I would like to even say that I was always a shining example of teaching the kids at home. And I myself, I can say, in some ways, I can say I f- I failed my own kids because I don't think I was always a teacher I should have been at home. Mm-hmm. Um, don't say anything, Peter. But <laughs> so yeah. But but but, yeah. but my point is, um, it's uh, it should be. I agree. But but the, 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 but how? I think mm-hmm. what we're talking about is is in a way it'd be a, a mind sh- change and just like burning the whole thing down and then starting from scratch. Yeah, I mean, you know, I do. I mean, I I'm not saying that the whole thing should take place at home, right? Mm-hmm. But I think it's right there in the beginning of the catechism. As right? the head of the household should teach his right his family, and even if. Because honestly, like it is, and you have this experience, sometimes it is pure torture because what you're trying to do is you're trying to get in all this memorization for kids uh, for whom it is no longer any fun, right? When they're kids, it's great Mm -hmm. when they're little because they love to memorize, they love to do all this stuff. And so you're trying to pound in um, all of this information, right? Uh, Trying to get them to memorize it. And it's not fun for them, and it's not fun for you. And I'm glad you found a way to do it, which is great, you know, mm-hmm. that they recite it again and again and again. But um, yeah, honestly, well, if a lot of that stuff could be done in the home, and I and we're just talking here about, yeah, the broken homes, there are definitely, there are definitely. Right. But even if, it, it, even if it was as easy as before you go to bed at night, doing a commandment in the meaning. Right. Or even if it was just doing the the chief parts no meanings right we i think we would have a right. lot healthier what, what i was what I was mentioning is uh, is how i've i've done a shift in my my um my memory work the last like 3 or 4 years now where rather than just have it be recitation or just write it out um uh once a week in confirmation class we read through 
the six chief parts, and then once at home they do it. So every week they're reading through the entire uh, entirety of the six chief parts twice a week, and then by the end of the year they know it and they they start thinking like the catechism, and it takes a pressure off of the memorization, mm-hmm. you know, and and so. So I really have liked how that has worked and is working for me now. And it's a suggestion to, to pastors who get frustrated with confirmation right? Uh, memory work because, you know, what was going on before I made that switch is I knew kids were memorizing it like 10 minutes before the class, and it's one ear and out the other ear. And then you have a review, and were they going to memorize it or not? You know, they have to, and it, it just doesn't seem to stick in a way that I would say, okay, in five years, if I ask you anything about the the catechism, they're not going to know anything. But here, I do think having that reinforced throughout the year is something that lasts longer than just, okay, you said it today, or right. And that's and that's what we should all be striving for as you know, parents, as grandparents, right? Um, that we should be helping our kids memorize these things, right? It's mm-hmm. like it's like uh, it says, teach a child when he is young, and when he's old, he will not depart from it, right? Mm-hmm. So start those things early, and they will stick. They really will. And even if you can do just a little bit, even if it's five minutes a day, uh, mm-hmm. the Spirit of God does work through that. And it makes it a lot easier down the line for everybody. Right. So... I just wanted to, uh, to mention on Berg's points here that uh, a couple reasons why another few reasons why it might not work teaching at home would be uh, one, it can be awkward just kind of sitting with your mom or dad and doing like a, a learning session because Daddy's, Daddy's cool it's a, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a whole thing, right? Like, especially maybe, maybe, uh, you know, Back in the olden times of your your youth, <laughs> um, it was easier to have the one-on-one time uh, to do all of this. But now, uh, I would argue, and, and maybe this is just young person being young person, school is getting harder and requiring more time. And then on your time off, you've got your phone, and you're chatting with your friends still, or... You know, you're playing games on your video game console, and it's the same with the parents, right? They're always they're they have to take time off their work or their leisure, and it you know you don't have those times where you're just kind of sitting around talking much anymore, and it has to become its own thing. And as the kid in that scenario, it would get old pretty darn quick. Or maybe, I mean, maybe the best way to do it is not to make it a separate thing. This is getting back to the classroom setting. Don't make it a classroom thing. Make it part of the meal. Right. Or and do it, it before you go to bed. Right. Or or just be mindful all the time that there are teachable moments right. all the time. Where, And I, and I think, I mean, I mean uh, something happens. Well, what do you think about that? There are times where you can talk about creation, the Ten Commandments, right. why we're going to church, and just it doesn't have to be a necessarily a formal sit-down all the time. Um, and I think, too, um, uh, to answer that, one thing that could answer that point, Peter, is this, is is maybe starting at, at such a younger age where it is a more natural, comfortable thing from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. You know, if it's a natural thing, 
for, for a husband and wife to be talking about those things even before the child is born and bringing the child with that. I think that might help. Would you say, Peter? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because this is going to be, and don't get me wrong, I have no illusions here. If the kids are in high school, this is going to be almost impossible to do. Right. Right? I mean, it, it just will be because patterns get so set and there are so many other things that it really isn't a part of the the routine, right? I understand that. And that's, some people it is. It's just going to be too late. But for others, ones who have younger children, um, those whose children aren't even born yet, I would say start those patterns young, start those patterns right away, and it'll be a lot easier on everybody. Right. And um, so, Peter, what you're saying is when I tried to... To teach you Latin. If I tried to teach you Latin, maybe maybe when you were two or three, it would have been different than... <laughs> <laughs> You're right. If I had learned Latin as my first language, it would have been easier. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> amo pater. <laughs> <laughs> it also might get you beat up in school. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, all right. And then I would say his third critique that Fisk had was that confirmation often becomes a little too intellectualistic, okay? That he talked about it as uh, being Lutheran trivia, okay? And another place is he, uh, in another podcast, he said, oftentimes we let our dogmatics uh, run our exegesis. So he would say that we use the Bible to supplement the catechism, rather than letting the catechism supplement the Bible. Any any thoughts about that? Yeah, I, I can... I think that's that's understandable as far as, um, you know, you want them to... I don't know, but... You, you don't want them to just learn a bunch of, a, a bunch of propositions, right? Mm-hmm. You actually want them to know the Bible and to love it. Right. right? I can speak to this point a little bit in that... Uh, I never felt that way. Um, as as I said, I, I kind of went through catechism twice with two different pastors, and uh, both had very different teaching styles, but they were pretty good at coming up with interesting ways to keep the information relevant. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Pastor Bullhagen here had, had always has great uh, parables he comes up with. Yeah, that's true. Such as like the uh, bifurcation, the, yeah, bifurcation, or some you know some some stories that have truth to them. It's it's a pretty uh, you know it's a uh, a rite of passage to hear the screwdriver story. Mm-hmm. It always it always shows up. Uh, for those of you who haven't heard it, maybe ask Pastor Bullhagen sometime. He'd love to t- to tell you the screwdriver story, and then um, to a to a. In a different way, I had Pastor Lur- Pastor Lorenz in Latimer, and uh, he he'd be a little more long winded with that kind of thing. But uh, he's he's always in the same way, really good at coming up with relevant stories to kind of stick points in your head along with it. And then he also had a workbook, which I really liked at the time. Mm-hmm. Where he kind of had a uh, a set uh, schedule and order of things, and you walked in to class knowing that you were going to go through this, 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 and this, and you had to write down, at least relatively 
an answer that will help you remember. It's like guided notes almost. He didn't grade the workbooks, but it was it was for your benefit to be like, okay, I'm going to write this down. And then later when you have the test, you can be like, oh, this was the answer. I wrote this down with my hand. It's easier to remember when you write it down. Right. Yeah, and I, I don't know. I And that's maybe another thing for a different time that I want to talk about, um, like the whole idea of tests and stuff. Um, because I think that gets into it too. Right. Is, you know, how much do you need to know? And is the, you know, is confirmation an exhaustive treatment of the Christian faith? That's a, that's something that like, I don't know, I kind of took his, his point of intellectualism and kind of took it to the next level because, um, I think that's an important question to ask. Like, does a kid need to know the, you know, the genus myostaticum? In order to be confirmed, right? Um, it's, it's like it says here. Um, in for the for the confirmation thing, uh, the the confirmation right in our L, in our LSB our Lutheran service book it says, you know, um, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You have been baptized and catechized in the Christian faith according to our Lord's bidding, mm-hmm. which means that. If you take it from the verse that we learned from, that means you've learned all these things. Right. And guess what? If you've learned all these things, then you don't have to <laughs> learn anymore. Right. And well, that's how it gets treated a lot of the times. Well, well here, this is what I've noticed is, as I'm teaching the do- the dogmatic type stuff to kids is, is, is what I'm doing is I'm filling in the gaps for them. When I'm talking to kids about uh, who Jesus is, you know, when I go through God and man, and I go through the prophet, priest, and king stuff, all I can see the lights going on in their heads where they never really, up to that point, actually understood why, what Jesus' death has anything to do with their forgiveness. Why that death 2,000 years ago from that person mm-hmm. actually means their forgiveness. And just walking them through in a dogmatic way, I see the lights going on in their head. Mm-hmm. And they say, oh, okay. Because I just, they knew the Sunday school answer, Jesus died for my sins. But why he had to be God, why he had to be man in order for that to happen, filled in the blanks for them. And so that they, by knowing simply who Jesus is and teaching it in a dogmatic way, you are making sure that they actually understand that process. Right. And, but, and, I, and Fisk argues, and I think I argue the same way, that first you should give them the biblical text. Mm-hmm. And then you use the dogmatics to explain it, okay? Rather than the other way around, right? Let the Bible speak for itself, and let them wrestle with it. Sure. And let them let them draw some of these conclusions out, and see if they can get there. Right. You know, that's one thing we try to do. The vicar mm-hmm. teaches the Old Testament one year, the New Testament the other, and they bring the ideas, they bring the catechism into that right discussion. You know, and that's and I think that's the whole point is that the catechism is a great way. For you, like after you read a section of the Bible, you can say, okay, is this telling me to do something, right? Is this law? Um, is this telling me how to love God or my neighbor, right? Mm-hmm. Is this a petition? Is this, right. you know, um, that's a great way to pull something out of the text, right? And kind of whittle it down to, you know, you get your hundred proof dogmatic statement, right? Mm-hmm. Out of the, you know, out of your wheat field of the scripture, right? Mm-hmm. But that's but that's the thing. I, I think, think I think I, it needs to be balanced. I think it needs to be both. Because right? I think you need scripture to teach the point 
of the catechism, but you also need the catechism to then allow them to understand. Yeah, because it's a distilled version, right? Right. It's di- distilled down to what is absolutely necessary, and that's the way that that's the way that Luther talks, right? Right. And so, um, yeah. So I mean, I guess I think his critiques are they have some merit. We should uh, look at what we what we do. And if you guys have any ideas... And, and there'll be a second part to this, because I have a, a list I threw together, but because of time's sake, we'll make this a part of the next episode. Right. So, yeah. And if we can get uh, Jonathan Fisk on here to, uh, you know, if he can like our discussion and uh, wants to join in, he's more than welcome to be a guest on Clerical Errors. <laughs> yeah, let's look into that. The podcast. Uh, one more thing I want to do is we have an email. Dun, dun, dun. Peter, do you have that email in front of you? I don't currently, but I can. Sorry, I was just uh, writing a tweet to Reverend Fisk. Oh. <laughs> Boy, he's on top of it. <laughs> I'm going to add him, bro. Okay. It's getting real, man. I was going to do that, too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Peter, play the intro. Confound the clerics. All right, we got a email from Hannah. Says, hello, clerics. I was pleased to hear you address my tweeted question about death doulas on your November 3rd episode. I was waiting for, and would have accepted, a tweet in response, but your discussion was much more satisfying. Plus, it was endearing to hear that Peter sent you a screenshot of the tweet (laughs) <laughs> which implied to me that even following a link to a tweet would be too difficult a journey for you to navigate. <laughs> God bless you for having a Twitter account regardless. <laughs> I, I thought of I something else. <laughs> I thought of something else that you might not know about, but that other Lutherans, college students especially, might encounter whether they realize it or not. Critical theory. I'll leave it at that so the Vicar app has something to do. Thank you for producing this confessional podcast. Heed Peter and don't let it turn into another celebrity pod. Yours in Christ, <laughs> Hannah. <laughs> All right, Hannah. Well, one I think, I, I, when we do get an email uh, or a, a tweet, if I could figure it out, um, I actually like, like these because it shows that they understand what we're trying to do a little bit. Indeed. And we don't take ourselves quite too seriously. And uh, um, so thank you, Hannah, for your question. And uh, I will take uh, that advisement about celebrity gossip uh, to heart. And I won't talk about Vicar so much. Quick, cancel the uh, <laughs> the Kanye watch section. <laughs> so, so Vicar, have you had a chance to look up what uh, critical theory is? Yeah, so so critical theory is a reflective assessment and critique of society and culture by applying knowledge from the social sciences and humanities. It came out of a a school of thought from Germany in uh, the 1930s, the Frankfurt School, but it's kind of a Marxist philosophy. It's kind of the, the, I don't know, the underpinnings, the the bottom of this, foundation of this. and it really is looking, at, uh, trying to liberate human beings from the circumstances that enslave them, right now. Okay, so so I have a thought before I let let Berg riff on this a little bit. Okay, and, go for it. And uh, the, the thing about what I find interesting is, is uh, 
it, all these social sciences, look at all these scene, these uh, things that oppress people and keep the people down and all those things. And the church gets wound up in all that too, right? They yeah. say the church does this, the church oppresses, the, the church keeps people from, from uh, you know, it, it's the powerful preying on the weak type mm -hmm. of a thing. But here, but my point is this, none of these social sciences actually bring up the the, the three-letter word that we talk about all the time. Which, which word is that? Sin. Okay. Sin. Okay, good. We're on the same page. Yeah. I mean, we live in a sinful, broken, fallen world, and every system of man is going to be flawed. It's going to be broken. It's always going to have someone who is selfish, someone who is self-seeking, be self-seeking, and selfish, and trying to run the show. That is nothing new. Yeah. Can't hardly believe it. <laughs> you seem so shocked, Bert. So, so I think part of critical theory then is, is, uh, well, you like I said my piece. You go. All right. So it it sounds like just from the little bit of reading that I did and a little bit that uh, Vicar so graciously read to us is that this finds its roots in both Immanuel Kant, his critique of pure reason which is a work that talks about um, the limits of what we can actually know. And also um, um, Karl Marx's Das Kapital, which was a work that was a critique of the modern uh, economic system, right? Mm -hmm. And if we know what uh, Karl Marx talked about, he saw the world not as, um, he saw the world essentially in conflict between uh, opposing uh, uh, socioeconomic classes, you had the bourgeois and the proletariat, and um, and that history was a cycle of economic uh, warfare, and we were finally getting to this place of a classless society. That was the eventual goal of the revolution, was to make everyone egalitarian and the like. Um, critical theory then tries to dismantle uh, culture, at least from, from my reading of it anyway, uh, tries to dismantle culture, literature, uh, the church even, uh, in order to find these underlying, um, uh, often invisible ways of control. So, for example, uh, we heard this the other day. Um, there's a uh, there's a ecumenical meeting going on in town uh, that they hold uh, at a particular restaurant, and uh, one of the pastors there said that hell was a means of control, a means of social control for keeping people in their place. Mm. Okay? This would be a this would be an example or an illustration of what critical theory does in that it looks at everything with a terrible motive that the haves are always trying to control mm -hmm. the have-nots, which is a complete violation of the 8th commandment. And 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 sociology has a very functional nature in it where it looks at everything and says, well, if there's a need of something, various systems come out of that to fill that gap. Mm -hmm. And that's why you have people, uh, well, what did, who is it, Karl Marx, who said that uh, that uh, uh, religion is... The, the opiate of the people. Opiate right? of the masses. Right. But where, uh, well, it fills that void. So if people are fearful, they have questions, they don't answer, that's when religion came comes into... F and and the, the problem is here is with all of these... Is, is it doesn't actually reflect the fact that there is a God. Right, because there is there is no God. And this is why, um, uh, for them anyway, uh, 
Um, the critical theory definitely says, well, we can't prove whether God exists or not. And if, you know, and if religion is using him, if Christianity is using God, uh, then the haves are using religion in order to, for people to work terrible long hours longing for a release in heaven, right? Mm-hmm. Would be the, the terrible way of looking at it. Um, marriage. Marriage just becomes a, uh, a socially acceptable form of prostitution and, enslaver and, and enslaving of women, right? Right. And so what this eventually does is critical theory doesn't build anything. It really destroys. Mm-hmm. It destroys uh, culture. It destroys the state. It destroys religion. Um, and and, then, and, I, I, and if I'm if I'm trying to place myself in the uh, critical theory mind frame here, okay, I think when it comes to, to to religion, I think some might say, well, isn't Jesus a prime example of it? He was taking the religious culture of the day and throwing it away. He was he was helping those who were weak and poor and those who are cast away from the society. And what Jesus was doing, he was the ultimate of the critical theory because he was actually doing and throwing away all these... these. Uh... Well, and you know, what, you know what happened? Then the church got a hold of him. <laughs> and then they built a system, right? Right. See? And they, they ruined what they Jesus... Ruined they Jesus. ruined Jesus. They made it. And so I think that's what happens. But, but if you understand that there is actually a true God. Right. You know, uh, and that's something I, I mentioned in my sermon that I preached uh, last Sunday is the fact that that your life is evidence that you have a God. Mm-hmm. It can't happen by accident. No. And so if, you know, uh, you, you take all the things that are supposed to create a life where that first cell came to be, you can shake all of that, that uh, those chemicals together, you're not going to make a living cell unless something happens. And and our bodies and our eyes are too complicated for them just to evolve out of nothing. The fact that you are here listening to the sermon or you here listening is a fact that there is a God. Now, you can argue with that all you want. You can say, oh, there is no God. We're going to explain everything as though there is no God, but you're ultimately going to fail. If you look at Karl Marx, he was going to do it for the people. What did it do? Whoever embraces... Uh, his kind of socialism wind up oppressing people mm-hmm. uh, because they're sinners. There is no perfect form. Right. There is none. And so... And while, while we do, and that's... I, I, and I think this question is actually really awesome because it kind of goes with what we talked about earlier in the episode with Fisk, right? Fisk was being critical of confirmation, right? Mm-hmm. And there is some merit and there is a place for criticism in the church and in our own lives and even in the state and in the family there are some things that actually should be looked at uh, scrutinized and gotten rid of because they are contrary to the word of god or maybe not even all that helpful anymore the problem with critical theory is that it's a bulldozer that just destroys everything and it doesn't build anything it just destroys all that's all it can do and uh not only that if you if you go through the the functional view that they like to go through, right? Mm-hmm. Everything serves a function. Everyone is using these to their advantage. You know, if you live life that way from functional view, it makes for miserable people. It does. <laughs> I imagine, Hannah, if you think of all the people who are really pushing this this uh, critical theory upon you, I guarantee you most of them were miserable all the time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Did not making them any happier. <laughs> right. 
It's not solving any problems. No. In fact, you just you end up in a wasteland, and there's nothing left. So, so from a practical point of view, then I think, um, uh, you know, Vicar is had graduated from college not too long ago. He had to look it up. What I mean by that is this: is this is obviously something that is pushed uh, at universities that aren't Christian. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think too, or e- secular. E- but- even if you don't use the the, the words, right? Critical the ideas theory, are all. Um, that's that's what they're teaching, you know. You can teach this stuff. It's like, oh well, why was it written this way? Or even the types of literature that they're appointing in in public schools now, right? Right. Um, where you look at the list from a hundred years ago, they spanned from ancient Greece all the way up to the modern period. Um, today in school, they only read modern stuff, right? You know, and there's a, there's a reason for that because of the. You know, um, but my, what I want to mention mm-hmm. from the from the practical point of view is is because Hannah's original question was talking about those who are in in universities, mm-hmm. right? And, and that is to to make sure that uh, uh, if you know someone in that situation, or you're going to be in college at some point, if you go to to find a good chaplain, a right. good campus place, a church on campus that that helps keep you grounded to to let you know that you're not alone in those situations and to uphold you in what you know is true and right. Right, because it is there and it's it's bad. I mean, I went to a I went to a state university and even though it was probably more conservative than most. I mean, it was there are a lot of anti-Christian feelings and sentiments and teachings. And, um, and, I, and I went through a, a public university too before seminary, and I, I had the same thing. Right. And so that's the thing is that, yeah, you really need, and this is, it's one of the most dangerous times, I would say, uh, in a young person's life, and they really need good chaplain, uh, good, good chaplains, good pastors, good... Um, Confirmation. It, yeah, I mean, yeah, you need good catechesis, right? right? Um, and and that maybe that actually uh, helps you decide what university you go to. Mm-hmm. I mean, really, that's what you should be looking for is that there's a good campus pastor there. So. Anyways, well, I think it's been a wonderful show. Thank you for the ha- the the question, Hannah. And uh, um, I will try and cut back on my celebrity gossip podcastery, right? So. Anyways, well, that brings us to the conclusion. Well, of hey, show. before we uh, before we go, Vicar, where can they find us, and what can they do, and what what kind of where can they send questions? Yeah, so they can they can send their questions to clerical errors uh, feedback at clericalheirs.org. Uh, they can find us on Facebook or anywhere you find your podcasts. Tell your friends about us. Put some money in our Amazon. Vicar wants his own microphone. Yeah, I would love it. Uh, if only we had linked the Amazon list at all still. Yeah. Yeah, maybe I'll do that. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe I'll put my TLH hymns up on the uh, thing too. Oh. And don't forget the Twitter, you know, at Clerical Airs. At me, bro. P. You know, with the traffic with, you know, Reverend Fisk, you never know. They might blow up. Yeah. We'll see. Yeah. Well, if he, if he wants to show up to our little corner of the internet here, we'll see. <laughs> it's true. It is a nice cozy yeah. corner, though. Well, we'll see who responds first, Fisk or Yay. 
<laughs> Sorry, Hannah. <laughs> I am uh, Bullhagen. And I'm Berg. Thanks for listening. May your yaritos be limey. Thank you for joining us. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Questions, thoughts, concerns? You can contact us on Facebook at facebook.com slash podcast. On Twitter, at clericalheirsp for podcast, or email us at feedback at clericalheirs.org. Thanks for listening to Clerical Heirs. See you next time. Hey, it's Peter. I'm working on a Christmas gift for the guys. If you'd like to help me out with that, go ahead and email me at christmas at clericalheirs.org. Thanks.